2: If we ain't all
1: free, ain't none of us free. You're listening to Alabama's only union talk radio show, The Valley Labor
2: Report, with Adam Keller and Jacob Morrison.
3: Welcome back. You are still listening to The Valley Labor Report, Alabama's only union talk radio show. We are now in overtime, the second half of the show, where we are online only, not on the radio anymore. We've got rid of the FCC censors. We appreciate you staying with us. We've got some cool stuff lined up for you. And first up, we've got Andrew Huddleston, Communications Director for the American Federation of Government Employees. Andrew, thanks for taking the time to talk to us.
1: Thanks so much for having me on the show, Jake. I'm a big fan of uh, what you all are doing with this show. Long-time listener and first-time caller, as it was.
3: (laughs) Well, I I appreciate your support. We appreciate the support of the American Federation of Government Employees, and sure. uh, appreciate you being able to come on. I don't know if you were listening right before we went to break, but before we get to the hit that we um, that we were going to talk to you about, that that we wanted sure. to bring you on specifically to talk about, as we were uh, heading out of the main show, we got a caller ask. I, you know, So I work for a manufacturing firm. I've got $7 an hour in raises over the past five years. I have five extra vacation days. Uh, you know, I think I've got it pretty good. What could a union do for me? What would your answer be to that?
1: Well, there are so many more things um, that a union brings to the table beyond just wages and benefits, but uh, a voice on the workplace, making sure that you've got health and safety, that you have the ability to negotiate. Um, scheduling to make sure that uh, you have a normal schedule time to uh, spend with your family, re- benefits, retirement benefits, healthcare, so that you have dignity, fairness, and respect on the job, fair pay, but also a dignified retirement. Uh, there's so much more that goes into a union than just uh, uh, pay and benefits. And also, I mean, I think that if you look at manufacturing overall, it sounds like potentially. Um, that is not as great of a deal as it may appear if you look at the data in aggregate for the united states
3: right right and and one of the things that i mentioned to him is that okay you know like let's let let's just say that you're totally satisfied there is there's nothing else that you want from your job which you know i i would find hard hard to believe i think that there's always there's always more but but even let's just grant that um that is not guaranteed without a union contract it can be taken away any time for any reason, unilaterally by the boss, without even so much as a consultation, then it doesn't work that way. If you're able to get in a union contract that's signed by both parties, um, and and there's there's a certain amount of of uh, a binding nature to your employment agreement that comes with Here. a union contract. And, and you know what is a what is a union? It is the workers coming together to collectively bargain and have some amount of say over the way that you do your work and that's you know you can get all of the money you know all the money in the world and still have no say in your workplace and and that's something that a union brings to the table that that you're not going to get outside of outside of that
1: i I think that's exactly right you know we always say a boss's promise is temporary but a union contract Mm. is in writing words in writing have meaning in this uh country thankfully and uh, uh you know that security that you get with a union contract knowing that next year uh you're going to have the same deal and the boss can't just unilaterally change it right. is uh, something that a lot of people seek i mean we and we see how bosses have uh, uh abused their power all throughout this country story after story every single day about that
3: exactly exactly i, I think that's I think that that's uh, that's that's good enough for me. So, Andrew, we had a last-minute addition to the program yesterday. Um, mm-hmm. When I saw when I saw this absolutely outrageous clip from Matt Gates, And and I wanted to bring somebody on from AFGE, and, and so that's why we reached out to you. You're the communications director for the American Federation of Government Employees. Uh, it's the largest federal employee union representing 700,000 federal employees, including workers at the VA. And so to set this up, Matt Gates, crazy person, is talking to FreedomWorks, crazy people about the va which is veterans preference for care which is something that i'm sure you know we'll get to a moment andrew matt suggests we just abolish it ben let's play this clip here is here is my question to the group is it savable i mean why not
4: abolish the va take all of the money that we are otherwise spending and go to an any willing provider system within our communities. And then if people get bad
3: care, they can vote with their feet and you don't have a two-tier system of healthcare in this country with our veterans and and with everyone else. So why why not, Andrew? Why not abolish the VA?
1: You know, I was watching this clip and, and some of the stuff around it last night in preparation for this. And what struck me was that you know, Matt Gates is really maybe the most extreme formulation of this idea, but everyone on that panel, a host of different members of Congress, were talking about privatizing the VA. And in some ways, we need to thank Matt Gates for being upfront about what it is that they're talking about, because when they're talking about privatizing the VA, they're really talking about the same thing, just doing it slow, more slowly, which is dismantling the entire Veterans Affairs system and uh, parceling it out and uh, sending veterans out into the private sector. But we know that that's not something, uh, a policy choice that's informed by what veterans want, um, what the VA does, or um, what the data shows us about healthcare outcomes and cost. So if we look first at what veterans say about the VA, 80% of the veterans say that they're satisfied with the care that they get at the VA. 90% say that they would recommend, over 90%, as a matter of fact, say they would recommend uh, another veteran get their care at the VA. We know that uh, the VA is veteran's choice for care, their preferred choice. If they can get care at the VA, uh, they want to receive care from the VA. We also know, study after study has shown over the course of many, many years, that non-veterans who are treated in the private sector have worse outcomes when we're talking about cancer, renal disease, diabetes, mental health issues, than veterans who receive care inside the VA. But until this year, really, we didn't have an apples to apples comparison study that showed how uh, what outcomes veterans receive when they're treated in the private sector versus what outcomes veterans receive when they're treated at the VA. Now, thanks to a new study from Stanford that came out earlier this year, we finally do have that data. And what that data showed was that veterans have better healthcare outcomes in emergency situations when they are treated at the VA versus when they're treated at a private healthcare. They versus when they're treated at a private hospital. That means they live longer. Uh, there are fewer people dying from preventable disease when they're treated at the VA. So uh, those two things alone uh, make this, you know, a pretty bad idea. But then we need to think about what other services the VA provides us as a society, right? These VA hospitals are not just hospitals that treat our veterans, although they certainly are that. They're also anchors in these communities, right? Places where People come to a fellowship and and, uh, connect with their fellow veterans. Uh, They provide economic benefits to these communities, especially the rural communities, where many of these places are, uh, many VA centers are uh, uh, at. Um, The other thing they do is they provide emergency care in uh, situations of national emergencies to the general public. So like we just went through this COVID-19 pandemic. And the VA was very involved in helping to respond to the COVID-19 pandemic in communities across the country. Likewise, the VA plays an important role in training healthcare professionals. Right now across the country, we're seeing uh, issues with short staffing, including at the VA among healthcare professionals. The VA is responsible for training 120,000 new healthcare professionals every single year. If we take that away from the United, if we just abolish that all of a sudden, we're gonna have a lot of problems. So this is a really extreme position uh, that is just not backed up by any of the, what veterans want by the data and information about um, VA care. And if we follow this um, recommendation, what we're going to end up with is fewer veterans getting treated. Um, They're gonna be paying more for that care and they're gonna be getting worse outcomes in the private sector so i don't know how anybody knowing that can recommend that we abolish the va
3: and the you know the the worst worst care in the private sector if we abolish the va um there are there will be i mean there are already veterans outside of uh you know a- outside of a reasonable driving distance from a hospital uh but this would further decrease their options that they've got you know they love to talk about choice right. oh I, you know i i just want choice i just want choice for veterans and here he is Saying, let's take away what is literally veterans' preferred choice, as you mentioned, but also mm-hmm. it's going to, to uh, it's going to severely hamper their ability to exercise their their right to access care at all.
1: Absolutely, and what we should really be looking at is the exact opposite of what uh, Matt Gates and these folks at this Freedom Works panel were talking about. They're talking about privatizing the VA, shutting places down, uh, closing hospitals for veterans and sending them out into the private sector. But well, we really should be thinking about modernizing and expanding services at the VA. We just had this pact Act, which is going to bring more and more veterans into uh, the system who are now eligible for benefits for toxic exposure and other uh, situations. So um, we really need to be thinking about how we modernize and expand those services and how we can uh, reach out and, and touch and help. More veterans, as you know, folks have come back from the twenty years of war uh, that we've been through in the past few decades, um, and make sure that those folks are taken care of, and that we're meeting our obligations to these people who have really, uh, you know, been fighting overseas on our behalf for uh, uh, two decades.
3: Andrew, I think uh, I think we have uh, thoroughly, thoroughly destroyed, uh, as they say on on YouTube, um, Matt Gates. <laughs> So <laughs> well, here's hoping <laughs> I, I appreciate your time. And, and presumably we're never going to hear this again. People are going to see this clip and, and they're going to never, you know, they're going to say, Oh, okay, well, it doesn't make sense. And I'm never going to suggest this again. That's, that's the hope.
1: <laughs> From your lips to God's ears. All, all right,
3: right. <laughs> all right, brother. Thanks. Appreciate it.
1: All right. Thank you very much.
3: Yep. All righty folks. So um, Elon Musk has a brother who is also a boss. Um, yeah, and apparently union busting runs in the family so never procreate with a boss it, it, that's going to be my advice Elon Musk's brother Kimball Musk apparently a non-profit edu- uh, he, he owns apparently a non-profit educational garden company called Big Green workers at Big Green decided to unionize and Kimball Musk Responded by first making threats and then firing all 10 workers who were unionizing, according to a complaint filed by the National Labor Relations Board, which is seeking a court injunction against the company. Now, you could believe that the reason why the company suddenly fired all these workers is because immediately after they began their union campaign is because they began their union campaign, which would be the most obvious explanation. Or you could believe what Kimball Musk is saying, which is that uh, when, quote, uh, quoting from this Bloomberg article, when it stopped employing workers to set up and support, quote, learning gardens, pivoting instead to providing grants and support for organizations such as schools to establish gardens themselves— that this was just a total coincidence. It was just a total coincidence that they decided all of a sudden to stop employing these people and uh, decided to provide grants to outside organizations to do this work instead. Just a total coincidence. In fact, Kimball Musk said the company decided to shift its model before even becoming aware of union activity. Magical. I mean, magic. I guess I guess that settles it. I guess that settles it, even though... The workers had no idea. there was no indication of any of any shift in the way that they were going to be doing their business. There was no warning. there was no talk of that. Uh, they began making threats against the workers after they unionized before or after they were going to unionize before eventually firing them. All of that is just totally circumstantial. This was this decision was already in the works. Uh, so you know i I mean i guess that settles it Uh, (laughs) but uh, this injunction if it goes through it would make the company rehire these employees is my understanding so uh we'll keep a watch on that and best of luck to those folks best of luck to those folks um while we wait for uh damon Garcia, damon and kyle aren't in the zoom yet right Nope. Okay. Yeah, so while we wait for them, there's this story, this local story out of uh, Huntsville that uh, about the the protest that happened a couple of years ago. And this new update is that the sheriff and the city of Huntsville cannot be sued for assault and battery, a Madison County judge found last week, which is super convenient for... (laughs) For the sheriff in the city of Huntsville. (laughs) During the police riot in Huntsville a couple of years ago, April Grubb was shot by rubber bullets, ripping open her calf, and she had not, nor did the police even allege, that she damaged any property or hurt any person. Cops say instead that they deployed this force to prevent the possibility that riots would happen But April says she was actually complying with orders to disperse when she was shot. But (laughs) cops think that it's justified to deploy this force to prevent something that there was no indication was going to be happening. Because maybe possibly it would happen.
4: Yeah, and I saw uh, no damage downtown, of course, except for one broken window that... uh, most people seem to believe was uh, fired by police or something yeah and uh, that that business was
3: also supporting the protesters so yeah. and the protesters <laughs> and the protesters then raised money to replace the window yeah for yeah yeah And if you all have seen
4: the the footage or like the images of uh, the damage these things can cause, it's serious serious damage uh, what are they two or three inch length uh, rubber bullets.
3: Yeah, yeah, fired out of a shotgun s- or a
4: rifle. It's mm-hmm. a, it is no joke. No joke at all. So. And I guess no one can no one can be held accountable no. for that. It was just No. I don't know I don't know if you mind mind me jumping in, but no. what bugged me is the way that no one seemed to know who was in charge that day. Mm. Um city, uh, city police were supposedly in charge, but there was snipers on the roof, there was state mm-hmm. troopers mm-hmm. everywhere with all sorts of uh, weapons that were not supposed to be there. Right, and uh, yeah, that was uh, really disappointing to uh, have such mayhem. And of course, no one's no one's in charge. Chief McMurray is gone now, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, no no one to blame there.
3: Yeah. So the charges against the sheriff and the city have now been dismissed by the Madison County Circuit Judge Alan Mann. So for now, though, the suit against the unnamed cops responsible it does continue. Um, but it's—I mean—it's almost certainly just a matter of time before they dismiss that charge too, because in America, cops and bosses are held to a completely different standard than normal working people, which is to say, no standard at all. <laughs> mm. Mm. Um, I mean, it, it's just crazy. We'll see what happens with those with that suit against the unnamed cops, but I can't imagine it going anywhere. Um, but it—it is—it's it, incredibly frustrating because April wasn't the only person that was that was hurt, that was shot by these rubber bullets and had their leg ripped open. Uh, A friend of mine also did, and a friend of mine, for for a year, for at least a year, I haven't talked to him in a long time, but but at least a year after he was having trouble walking. But there's like no consequences for anybody about this. Yeah, and many people not even uh,
4: involved in the active protest were being maced. I know a few people walking to the protest who were maced by state police, and that was a... Yeah, there, uh, there's some great footage of cops rolling down the street far off the square and just macing people. Um,
3: it's just, and you had you had friends that were arrested that day, right? I did. Yes, I had multiple
4: friends, and I I believe I had one friend who missed work and ended up quitting their job because mm. they were in lockup. And uh, although people uh, arrived with bail money that evening, they were not processed or released um, that day. Or that evening, despite uh, having money in hand, that uh, to to bail these
3: people out, uh, right? So they weren't able to be bailed out and join the riot again that same night. <laughs> yeah, I guess that was the.
4: I don't know. They, they, they were. They said there was shift change. They said we didn't. They don't do it after a certain amount of time. There was a lot of excuses thrown around. Um, but
3: yeah. It's just crazy. Absolutely, crazy. and I believe
4: there's legislation to be able to keep people in in jail. Is that right? I think you talked about that previously. Yeah, we, we
3: talked to the yeah. uh, we talked to the sponsor of the bill actually yeah, yeah. for like an hour. Just throw them in jail indefinitely, <laughs>
4: like. Yeah. Uh, Who needs them rights, you know?
3: Yeah, under that bill that he was proposing, that almost certainly he's going to propose again in this legislative session coming up after the election, but in that legislation he was proposing, you could be thrown in jail, convicted of a felony, thrown in jail for six months without ever having to have damaged any property or hurt any person or even been caught in the act of doing that. But you could still be thrown in jail for, quote unquote, rioting for six months. And I know personally, a
4: few people were held uh, under uh, legal. I mean, they were they were I think some were convicted over the January 6th, but most almost all of them were dismissed. And one gentleman that they brought to court was in his getting in his car, leaving with the car on and they dragged him out of his car and he was arrested. And then they ended up dismissing the charges. Of course, because I don't know. I don't see how any, any, um, any judge could put someone yeah. could penalize someone for being in their car trying to leave a protest, and then uh,
3: you said January six, but you meant the June June six. I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I was like, Polit- I was like, oh, political oh, wow. salad, political yeah. salad. Wow, you had friends who were <laughs> no who were in January six. Wow, that's pretty. <laughs> you've got a rule. Yeah, a and real the FBI, list. they're really <laughs> <laughs> been. Ben just has This is why I'm not all... a co host. I just can't. <laughs> ben has, poli- has friends from all political stripes. He's got, he's got friends who are arrested at Black Lives Matter
2: rallies Brother, and are All my who are... friends are in jail, just <laughs> yeah. let
3: me tell you. <laughs> oh, man. That would be, that would be crazy <laughs> to be close friends with somebody arrested at Black Lives Matter protests and arrested for trying to overthrow yeah. the government.
4: Well, I mean, we've got uh, Alabamians in, that just got out of Ukrainian prisons, and we have That's Alabamians true. True. that are. <laughs> There's all types, all types in Alabama, types. you know. It's just... All types. That's right. <laughs> Thanks for correcting me there. Yes, <laughs> the June sixth. Yeah.
3: All right. Well, have we got uh, we got Colin Damon in the Zoom or or one of them in the Zoom yet? Do not, as of yet. No, as of yet. Oh man.
4: Oh wait, we do have Kyle. He's just bouncing in here. Let's
3: get Kyle in here.
4: All right. Hold I told him I, told him
3: I told him 11:30, but we've done. He
4: may have been in here. I may have done goofed.
3: I told him eleven thirty, but we uh, we we went through the uh, we went through these topics so fast, and we missed one topic that we were planning on talking about today too, because uh, right. Bobby hasn't shown Bobby had not shown up. We were oh yeah, the, so so the thing about the there there's a and I'll, I'll just give like a, a little quick just a quick update on this. So we were planning on talking to Bobby Watson. He's the president of Steelworkers Local 971, which is one of three Steelworker locals representing paper mill workers at West Rock in Fort Mitchell, Alabama. They had a contract ratification vote that ended this morning at 9 a.m. And we had planned yesterday, I was talking with Bobby, and we had planned for him to come on the show and announce the results of the count live on air at 10 a.m., um, but I, I guess the count, I haven't heard from him, but I guess the count is just going long and I'm sure there's like all, all kinds of stuff going on. You know, you got you got people potentially preparing for a lockout. So I don't doubt that there's, you know, that, that there, there's a lot, a lot happening there. And, and so he, he hasn't, he hasn't made it in and he hadn't let, let me know what, what's going on down there. So, um, but the strike deadline, they had initially authorized a strike, uh, last week and so they sent the 10-day notice to the company um, that they would go on strike Tuesday at midnight. The company came back with another offer, and so they're voting on, they're, they voted on that, voting ended at 9. The company said that if they vote it down, they will lock them out beginning Tuesday at midnight. So we could potentially be looking at a paper mill lockout at Fort Mitchell, Alabama, West Rock, paper mill uh, Tuesday at midnight. Um, we'll try to keep you updated on that. And, uh, and and if Bobby, uh, gets in touch with me before we go off the air, uh, then, then he'll be able to come on after we talk to Damon and, and, uh, Damon and Kyle. So that's, that's the update on that. Uh, we'll keep you updated though. Maybe we'll, we'll have something for you next week for sure.
4: And we have Damon in the zoom just now. I'm just going to be setting up the frames. All
3: right. All right. So, um, So we have, I'm really excited about this. Uh, It has been a very long time since we've talked to both of these folks. um, But uh, Damon Garcia is the proprietor of the Damon Garcia YouTube and TikTok channels. And now author of the new book, The God Who Riots, Taking Back the Radical Jesus. We've got him on now to talk about his new book and to help facilitate the conversation. We've got Kyle Kearns, proprietor of the Labor Kyle YouTube channel, co-host of All Gamers Are Bastards, proprietor of Profane Illuminations, a new show by Zero Books, and soon an author as well, and he has a day job, presumably. I don't know what I don't <laughs> know. You guys are busy. Yeah, dang. Damon, Kyle, thanks for taking the time to talk to us. I appreciate it.
2: Yeah, thank you. I'm so happy to be here. This is exciting. I've been looking forward to this for a long time. Yeah, me too. It's nice to be here, friends.
3: Nice. Nice to have you here. Adam sends his uh since his apologies for not being able he said he really hates that he's missing um that that he's missing y'all uh he enjoyed our conversations a year and a half ago during our fundraising stream for the mine workers um but he is working today can you believe that he had had a union guy working on a saturday what a a saturday what a bunch of nonsense Um, but yeah, so he, he's working, he's a stagehand. He's a union stagehand member of the, of IOTC, the stagehands union, local 900 here. And they've got, they've got a show or something that came up. And so he was like, oh, well, it'd be nice to have the money. So I'm going to take that. And, uh, he doesn't get paid for this. (laughs) So (laughs) neither do I. So, um, so this is generally a union show, but you know, also since I'm one of the showrunners, uh, I can talk about what I want and I've got a particular interest in faith and, you know, to be fair to the topic, I, I do think that faith is a subject of interest for working people and for folks interested in supporting working people because, you know, faith really plays a pivotal role in the ways that we do or don't resist uh, the powers that be, whether that's our government or our boss. And uh, and that's really what the book is about, Damon. And and so, you know, I don't think it's too far off the narrow track for the show. Um, so, you know... I. I I mean, right? I, I think it's. I, I think there. There's definitely things to talk about when we're when we're talking about you know the intersections of, of faith and, uh, a, and the political working class.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I was mean, I felt really excited to write this book, especially because. I, I grew up in an evangelical church and I was in ministry and that kind of church growing up. So it was a pretty conservative theology and conservative politics. And then I ended up exploring once I felt like I was called to ministry. I was like, okay, let me really study this stuff out then. Went to Bible college a bit, learned a lot of stuff. And I, I felt like it, this was a huge responsibility to be leading people like this and to be talking about these big ideas. But as I kept studying and learning and uh, doing ministry, I found myself outside of those theological boundaries of my denomination. And I realized like, oh, yeah, there definitely is like a way more progressive way to talk about this stuff. And so I, I definitely like had a season around progressive Christians. But what really got me to be passionate about my faith was understanding that there is an anti-imperial stream throughout Christian history, anti-colonial stream, and even anti-capitalist stream, and realizing, yeah, the Christianity that's about God being on the side of the oppressed and God being on the side of the workers is, well, first off, what I'm all about, but I will also see that throughout the Bible. God is on the side of the oppressed, uh, and story after story, those who are being crushed by empire after empire— That is where God is to be found. And all this stuff about God's anger and wrath is there, but it's pretty much every time against people who are exploiting others and colonizing others. And so, and then even when it's, when God talks about like a nation being wicked or righteous, what he goes to is you, how did you take care of the widows and the orphans and the foreigners? And so... Once I was able to like see the Bible from that lens, I realized like, oh yeah, this is, this changes everything. I don't have to be like the type of uh, progressive or lefty Christian that just ignores the bad parts of the Bible. I can just realize, okay, how do, how do we read ancient sacred texts? What is the character of this God? And a big part of what I argue in the book is that this God is on the side of the powerless and the poor as they struggle for freedom. Uh, to to take power from those who have the power to make them poor, and that's yeah, that's and, also a big part of liberation theology. So that was a big inspiration too. I
3: I think that you know that is is really really um, it's really underemphasized in a lot of of con, in, in conservative Christian theology. You know the 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 way that uh the god of the bible seems not terribly happy with with people in power and people particularly who abuse their power and abuse people who are less powerful than them um and i have lost track of which verse it is but but i'm i am 85% sure that that i recall somewhere in the new testament a a, a recitation of the sins of Sodom and Gomorrah and and you know why it is that that Sodom and Gomorrah was was destroyed and and so you I mean the the, the name Sodom is so associated with with you know homosexuality that that has become the name for uh uh for homosexual relations in in, in some instances you know sodomy right and but the and and so when you think of Sodom and Gomorrah you think oh they were, you know, they were destroyed because they're gay. And there's, I'm almost certain there's a place in the New Testament that lists the sins of Sodom and Gomorrah, and that's not even on it. And the first one that they mention is how they treat their poor and how they treat the widows and yeah. stuff, you know, that you take from I the got it, I
2: got it pulled up.
3: You have it pulled up. Well, let's let's hear it.
2: Yeah, it's, it's actually uh, from Ezekiel, one of the prophets, where he says, this, this was and in this verse, the prophet is warning another nation from being like this. And so he says, this was the guilt of your sister, Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. They were haughty and did abominable things before me. Therefore, I removed them when I saw it. That's Ezekiel nineteen forty nine. And even in that story in Genesis, where it talks about Sodom and Gomorrah, it's, it's so messed up that people try to say, like, oh, it was because they're gay, because these two angels came into the city, and the men surrounded uh, this house that they are staying, saying, bring a- them out so we could have sex with them. But it's like, in that situation, the issue isn't a dude being with a dude, it's sexual assault. Also, why are we assuming that the angels are male? Like, they're angels or whatever. So it's like, that's the bigger issue there. And, and it's so it's really cool that Ezekiel lays that out much later. Um, yeah, and yeah, I right. I
3: brought that to somebody, you know, when I, because I, I I always heard, I never heard that about Sodom and Gomorrah. I had no idea that they were, that they had too much to eat, right? That was never mentioned, ever, in all the sermons that I heard about Sodom and Gomorrah. I'd never heard that. And so I say, you know, I, I went to some people in my family, and I was like, you know, why do you have this emphasis on this thing when this prophet is, is, the emphasis is clearly is clearly here on how they're treating the poor. Why is that not you know Why is that not an emphasis of of the sermons that, that y'all have? Why does why does your emphasis in, in the sermons that y'all have not line up with with what the Bible is saying about this story that it tells? Um, and and you know I, I think that it, that gives us a, a good segue to kind of backtrack about how you know my understanding is that all of us have Similar-ish kind of faith traditions that we grew up in, uh, you know, all conservative evangelical. I came from a, you know, a charismatic Pentecostal type community. Um, I, I I believe that, that Kyle did as well. I don't know Damon if if the community yeah, I did, came. Yeah, did. Definitely. It was charismatic and Pentecostal. Yeah. Okay, yeah. So yeah. well, here we are. All of <laughs> us came out of charismatic Pentecostal traditions, and the folks that I grew up with, at least. I don't know about y'all. They still love me and I give them that. They have I every time I go to my parents' church, they they're nothing nothing but gracious to me. Occasionally, I will get preached at, but they do it because they love me and I understand that. But now, they would say, they would say that I'm a godless commie, right? They still love me, but I'm a godless commie. And I'm assuming that the people that y'all grew up with would say similar things. So you know, Damon, you've, you've been talking. So Kyle, I want to hit this, give this to you. Talk to us a bit about your religious upbringing and, uh, and why you went so wrong.
0: Oh, yes. Uh, well, <laughs> Bible college, just like so many of us, um, I was raised in like a, a, holiness tradition in the Wesleyan tradition. So calling it charismatic is like, it wasn't charismatic in liturgy necessarily, but in its origins, Comes from uh, holiness movements in the 19th century, which is in the same sort of context—the context of revivalism um, of the tent revival, as well as a sort of like um, and a, a, a less cohered version of church. And by that, I mean like less of an. Est- in the 19th century, there was you know less establishment in terms of Protestant denominations, even than there are today. While this had already been you know, a, there had been a significant amount of time passing to where. Baptist and Presbyterian traditions, especially in the United States, had started to really take hold. Um, The kind of church that I grew up in was something that kind of formed around and outside of that. Um, And what, as a result, it was in its origins, this very sort of like decentralized kind of worship service, still very Christian, you know, Christian of the Bible in the way that people would be most familiar with it, but something that was very different than how it ended up being when I I grew up in a very traditional evangelical church in that it had a very strict hierarchy. Mm-hmm. Um, at the top was the pastor, his deacons, and the people that he chose um, to sort of, you know, rise to that inner circle as friends and family. Um, and then below that was a set of um, staff at the church as well, and then a volunteer staff. Um, and for a really long time, that was basically my entire life, my family's very religious. Um, they're lovely people. Um, We still get along great, but um, I spent most of my time in church volunteering in music ministry with students, um, teaching Sunday school, all kinds of stuff. Um, The problem was, is that not only was I struggling a little bit as I was learning to articulate my own politics. I grew up in a union house. my, My family trade is actually firefighting. And the building trade. So pretty much everyone in my family was in some way in a union house, but they're all very conservative and very religious, too. But as a result, throughout my childhood and the way that I was brought up, behind me were always this sort of like how like I, I had I was being taught about loving and caring for the least of these. Um, and presumably that includes the poor, while watching people who have a great deal um not just keep their sort of actual resources for themselves and for their church, but in the way that they lived their day-to-day lives, they were obsessed with this sort of top-down way of doing church. Um, They encouraged people to monitor each other, to turn, they turn everyone in church turns into little snitches to start praying, praying for each other and that sort of a thing. Um, you rather than being affirming and encouraging of people for who they are and trying to figure out some sort of greater project by which the teachings of Jesus can allow us to 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 be bigger than ourselves instead they encourage people to monitor each other to snitch on each other um and to to do this very quiet sort of conflict and aggression on behalf of the people who are in charge and if that sounds familiar to you as a labor radio show it sounds like some boss nonsense. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that be, Like monitoring your behavior, making you work and be a certain way and act a certain way, encouraging you to snitch on people who aren't quote unquote doing what they want. Um, and in the back of my head, the entire time was also I'm gay. And like, it was hard growing up. It was it like gay stuff was at the center of the culture war the culture war was just now starting to take its shape that we're familiar with and at the center of that was like gay marriage and adoption and i grew up in florida and that was a big conflict for a while whether or not they'd let gay couples adopt and it just like it came to a head eventually eventually i just couldn't i couldn't Allow the sort the the really powerful impacts of the teachings of Jesus of Nazareth could not circle the square of the evangelical church I grew up in. It makes me think of what's so important, what I think about Damon's book is that it's it's a it's an attack on church from above. And this idea that like from below looks like conflict, different way of doing church in a different way, just as you're saying, Jake, with the thinking through a new way of thinking through faith, revisiting the supposed, you know, narrative of Sodom and Gomorrah and realizing it was actually different. um, Books like Damon's allow us to have a new way of seeing church, despite of all of the stuff that we all grew up in that we're most familiar with, and that no, there's actually a different way to do things. Um, And that's what really resonated with my background, I think.
3: Yeah, that's your that is fascinating. I I I can say, you know, uh um in fairness to the church that I grew up in, it was very much not like that. Uh it is it uh, the denomination that they have on their signs is actually holiness. Uh it's very charismatic in liturgy, but it is very much not top down and particularly in the church that I grew up at, that each because it's not there's no like in in this particular movement, there's no hierarchy of the denomination. Uh it's all yeah. just a hundred, some odd churches that are loosely affiliated with each other, and the the affiliation yep. is so loose that on on opposite ends of the spectrum, you're going to have people who are like li- liberal in that some of them go to ball games, and and conservative in that they don't wear jewelry that are that they don't even some of them don't even consider themselves the up uh, the per- people on the other end of the spectrum actually part of the movement. But that's how kind of loose the affiliation is. But in my church, yep. particularly. It was a very and I always loved this. And 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 now thinking back about it, it it kind of confuses me that they don't take this outlook outward, but the service is very small d democratic. Um the preacher has my whole life been sickly, and so he's at church maybe 50% of the time. So half of their services don't even have a pastor over it. They just have some guy leading the service and uh, 90% of services do not have a sermon. It's all testimony about this is what, this is how I feel the Lord has moved in my life this week. This is something that I was thinking about. This is something that helped get my mind up. Um, And, and you know, so it, 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 but when you take them out of the context of the church, they become exactly like any other evangelical. In that, if the boss does something to you, pray about it or get another job. Right, Mm -hmm. suffer in silence. Don't fight back. It's your fault. Potentially, it's even your fault. Um, And if it's not, just pray about it. And there's and and I've even had people say to me, you know that like you're you're never going to change anything this world is doomed the world is going to come to an end soon anyway right so it doesn't matter even what even if you change anything you need to get yourself you need to purify yourself you need to focus on yourself and any bad that happens in the world accept it put your head down and move on and that always seems very that always seemed um You know, there is a bit of a dissonance with how they conduct their services because it's very like anybody. I mean, literally, it's so democratic, small d, that a preacher can be up preaching, the guy, right, the guy, and a teenager can walk across the altar and lay hands on somebody in the middle of a sermon and interrupt the sermon, right? This would, you know. So, I mean, I think that's really, really freaking cool, and I've always loved that about that church, but it's very much the same as anybody else and i i wonder about you know i don't know See, it's it's strange to me but you know damon how 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 does uh you know Kyle and, and my experience relate to yours and relate to to you know the things that you're trying to combat in the book
2: yeah it's it's interesting growing up pentecostal charismatic because the, my parents started going to church when I was two and they felt like they needed some radical life change. And my mom's sisters are going to church. So that's when they started looking for a church and they ended up at this church that had a heavy focus on deliverance ministry. And before they knew what that was, they felt it. And in those contexts, deliverance means basically it could be like spiritual deliverance of like deliverance from um, sickness or from Um, grief and loss or addiction also on the more extreme end deliverance from literal demons and stuff like that but they i grew up with them really prioritizing okay the point of this faith is to help transform people's lives for the good to deliver them from that which oppresses them and i think that played a huge part as i started evolving because i felt like okay well there's a lot other types of deliverance that people need, like deliverance from lack of healthcare, deliverance from lower wages, deliverance from this housing crisis we're in. It's and so it's like if, if we're really about this, if we're really about the the spirit liberating us from um, these issues. Then let's think bigger and let's think more systemic. And what we often see is for, for a lot of people, the fastest way to becoming this radical leftist is through their faith instead of in spite of it. And so I continue to be really inspired because that's my story. I know that's Kyle's story. I know it's probably your story, Jacob. And it's like, yeah, of course. So, so there's a lot of us. It's interesting. I think more people who are like, have faith and have these leftist politics, some of them are like, well, yeah, my faith leads me to these radical politics. And then some, which is also fine, are like, well, yeah, I just separate that. Like, let's have materialist answers to materialist questions. And there's also other questions in life. And that's where my faith comes in. And so there's a few ways to approach this. But, um, and I try to approach both in the book, and really just affirm people's journey who are in similar types of of journeys of being like, yes, your suspicions are correct. Jesus was way more radical than the people around you let on. And it totally makes sense for this to lead you toward the the most radical left uh, abolitionist labor uh, communist politics, of course.
3: So what are then, you know, the the version, you know, popular versions of Christianity tend to prime one to relate to their betters in a very in a very um servant type way you know that that's a word that the Bible uses in, mm. in, in in some instances right and and so you know pop versions of Christianity they do tend to they uh you know the sermons that you hear they prime us to relate to our betters our bosses politicians uh the government in a uh, in a, a deferential way. Um, and even in a, in a totally detached way, like, you know, just don't even think about it. A a lot of people at the church that I grew up at, they don't even vote because they don't, they don't want to participate with it. Um, and and they, they don't think it matters anyway. Um, and, and, you know, so, so there's a very, you know, okay, you know, the world's going to do what the world's going to do. I'm just going to pray about it. But I'm not going to participate in any struggle, and and that's kind of the the way that that it seems like a lot of churches um, that a lot of churches prime folks for. Why, where does that come from, um, and 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 do you think that is the correct way to relate to your betters?
2: Yeah, it's a very individualistic way of looking at their faith and the world, and at, I mean. I'm sure, as a lot of people know, there was a lot of work that went into transforming our faith into a very individualistic version. It's, it's Unfortunately, a lot of these churches act like the way they teach Christianity is how Christians have always taught. But there is cultural developments that led to it being taught differently, like this. And so, I think it, it there is it is awesome that a lot of churches talk about helping people, serving people, and um, being able to like uh yeah care for others but i think a lot of them stop at thinking about it in a systemic level and realizing like i love uh the quote from dr king where he said we're all called to be the good samaritan on life's roadside and help those who are beaten on on the side of the road or the beggars but we That should only be an initial act, and we should consider restructuring society so that it stops producing people beaten on the side of the road or producing beggars. We need a total revolution of values. And so that's a big thing that I'm trying to get a lot of Christians to be on the same page with. And it's also interesting because with that that narrative of, yes, it's good to help people who are poor, it's good to take care of others— it's it becomes more difficult to see themselves as someone who is in need, realizing like, oh yeah, I'm I make significantly low wages too, just because I have a lot more than some people I know. I'm still the exploited one in this workplace where the boss gets um so much more than me and pays pays me barely anything where I could barely afford the f- the few things I can afford. And so, I think I think it's it's just such a much bigger perspective to realize like God is on the side of the poor and the oppressed and the exploited. And those of us workers are part of the exploited. Of course, there's varying degrees of the suffering we're going through, but we must advocate for ourselves too and be able to liberate each other from this exploitation.
0: In church, yeah. In church, yeah. you hear a lot of pray pray for the pastor, pray for uh-huh. our leaders pray for the president I mean to repent maybe like the like I <laughs> they they take all of this stuff that's so very that's so social your job, your work, the amount of money you make, the ability to take care of your kids or your spouse where you're having a roof over your head and stuff like that and it's taken for as it's taken as this like purely you know godly thing right that we have no agency over our world that we have no stakes in our environment and then more than anything the thing that really gets you know <laughs> that, that that really inspires me toward action I'll say um uh is the idea that the person who's sitting next to me in church um their livelihood their ability to provide for themselves um is an impersonal thing for me uh that's that that is offensive to me if i want to be offended by one thing it's that i'm not supposed to care deeply uh, about the people around me and i'm not supposed to care so deeply that it inspires me towards social action the idea is that your faith is this thing on the inside it's this constant form of introspection just as we were talking about It has no actual impact on the exterior world. We just, the exterior world is too messed up anyways. We have to refocus on ourselves. And it's like, every time I go and I refocus on myself, it becomes social again. All of a sudden, it's not like the second that it becomes about me, it's all of a sudden, it's not about me anymore because it's like, okay, well, it's not just me. What about the guy sitting next to me? It's just the same thing as that's what, that's the principle of organizing at work and labor in the first place. It's just like, this is not just about me. And I actually do care about the people around me, no matter what management or the people in charge give me permission to do. You don't need permission to be a good Christian. You don't need permission to intervene on behalf of the poor. You don't need permission to intervene on behalf of your coworkers. In fact, if you seek permission, they're going to tell you no. So you need to just do it anyways, because they're not going to help you, you
2: know, like. Real quick, too, I think we see this very individualistic Christianity in the way that calling is talked about or purpose is -hmm. talked about where it's just like, what is your individual calling, the thing you're supposed to do in the world, or rather the career you're supposed to have, um, whose labor you must sell, who must you sell your labor to, that God has for you written in a book that sets history out already instead of realizing our each one of our destinies are deeply intertwined we're going toward the future together and i would say that god is actually experiencing this life with us along with us luring us toward building a better world i mean If you believe in prayer, then you should partly believe at least that, what I'm saying, that God is affected by us and we are affected by God. And, um, yeah, it it totally changes the whole thing when you realize, oh yeah, my purpose is all of our purpose so much bigger than what, what is the one little career I'm supposed to chase after.
3: And I think that, you know, the, the focus on, um, it, it, it's really convenient for, for the bosses and, and, you know, the government that that there's this whole uh, mainstream strand of Christianity that really inculcates a, um, a passiveness from from yeah. folks. You know, that, that's just super convenient that, you know, uh, that it happens to help the people at the top, this version of, of, of the religion.
2: Yeah, it was very intentional. Like people don't realize that the word fundamentalists, it comes from a group of Protestant Christians who called themselves fundamentalists in the early 20th century for the first time. And what we had seen as there was wins for labor the and more regulations on uh, workplaces, these bus- businessmen, CEOs started to look like the bad guys. And they were, but they needed they had enough money to try to change that narrative and so they hired on different uh, pastors to develop this pro-free enterprise capitalism gospel. And, and and they're doing especially also because there were a lot of Christian socialists at the time who were like, of course our faith leads us to do this work. And so that, because that's where the funding was, became more and more popular mm-hmm. and stronger in our culture. And it's like... Um, yeah, that, that 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 was very intentional to ha- that we have a faith that's so individualistic and that is so passive toward the exploitation there.
3: And that and that's oh what...
2: yeah, and, and then real quick, the fundamentalists come from because a, an oil businessman paid some ministers to put together this pamphlet filled with all the fundamental beliefs we must all agree on to combat. And, uh, the culture war and combat liberalism progressivism and all that and that's where that term comes from and oh, now of right. course it's evolved to describe very constrictive religion but right. yeah wow
3: i didn't i didn't realize that and and so the, and and so you know combating this this uh you know popular version of of christianity or or some aspects of it uh you know that was a big reason for for writing the book and and so mm-hmm. the uh, what are the things about Christianity that, that's that's in the Bible that that leads you to, you know, maybe what are some of the stories that lead you to the conclusion uh, you know, that we should be on the side of workers, that uh, you don't actually have to be so deferential to people in power that uh you know, that things can change and things can change for the better. And we should be active in, in making that. So what are the things in the Bible that, that make you think uh, that, that make you think that way?
2: Yeah. Like, like I mentioned earlier, there's several verses throughout the Old and New Testament about caring for uh, the unprotected. I mean, that, this stuff about widows and orphans that you could see again and again, the reason those get brought up again and again is because as a class they were unprotected because they weren't like a part of a man's household. And so it's so important for God to emphasize these people have no one to advocate for them. So they must be advocated for, and that's what it means to be this just society. And then also again and again, stories of workers, even even in some of Jesus's parables of workers being exploited and um, really emphasizing how evil these people, uh, Bosses, bosses who are characters in these parables. But I think the big thing is straight from the beginning of Jesus's ministry, he say, he quotes Isaiah and says, the spirit has anointed me to uh, free the oppressed and to um, free those in prison. And it's, it's like, that is what I'm doing here. It's not about getting you, it's changing something in your soul so you could go to a good place after you die it's about building a new kind of world. And then when Jesus talks about the kingdom of God, he doesn't talk about it as some place elsewhere. He talks about it as something that grows from within you and out into the world, where the first are last and the last are first. And so you see every step of his ministry that is how he's living it out, t- taking special attention on the poor and on the sick. And then after the after he leaves, the disciples have uh, catch the vision and immediately start building these communities where they share property and they take care of one another because they realize that's what it means to be a Christian. And then the whole book of acts, they're inviting people into those communities and none of those evangelists are telling people join us or else you'll go to hell and burn forever. None of the, the evangelists in acts, it's all about join this community where we can take care of one another and survive the oppression we're facing under the Roman empire.
3: And, Even in uh, the Lord's Prayer, which is, um, you know, the the way that Jesus teaches people how to pray, one of the opening lines is, "Thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven." You know, there's a real there's there's a real interest in in change in the world changing and in God's kingdom coming to earth, and and us being part of that happening.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And uh, that's why Jesus was killed. Like crucifixion was specifically a political punishment for those who, it was, it was for sedition, those who, and so, and that's also why it was always in public on a hill for everyone to see what happens to those who stand against the rule of Caesar and the rule of Rome. And it's also way more likely that G- when Jesus was crucified, there wasn't just two people beside him. There was probably a bunch because they did that a lot, crucified a bunch of people um, so people could see to stay in line. And so Jesus teaching about the kingdom of God, ushering in the kingdom of God is implying the ushering out of the kingdom of Rome and, and his disciples clearly knew this. They were envisioning the end of uh, the kingdom of Rome a lot and, and Jesus as a, a Jew who thought like many Jews of the time totally believed that God would destroy the Roman Empire and he was interested in teaching people these new social values to live out post the destruction of our empires and i think that that yeah rome fell and then of course other empires replaced it but i think we it helps for us to keep that vision of there is another way to live there are other ways to live out our faith
0: it's your testimony
2: right mm. Sorry,
4: please. <laughs> i was just gonna um, cut in and ask y'all's like opinion this has been cutting in but uh i thought it was interesting how they treated like non-jewish people in the bible and how like generous it seemed like the people that were outside the the i guess the jewish system at the time uh were treated uh and like how how jesus spoke to that i was I wanted to get y'all's take on that
2: Mm. Yeah, I think uh, that it was, that was a big Paul thing in uh, the New Testament, where he felt particularly called to the Gentiles and teaching people that, oh yeah, this this salvation thing, this God's love thing, is universal. And the um, and during his life, up until the point he died, he, that was not popular. The leaders of the church were saying no that we don't need to do that and that's not right and then decades after he died after the temple was destroyed in the year 70 and people started to put together the gospels people realized like oh yeah this is a good idea actually (laughs) especially because we're experiencing so much suffering and it's hard to keep going and the uh and that's why the gospels are written in greek like paul's letters are written Mm -hmm. in greek to reach out in that way and yeah yeah so and kyle has written a lot about Paul and knows a lot of things that I think really stretch this whole thing way bigger and wider. Uh, Paul is like it,
0: it the, both of those questions both of the previous question and and that one are sort of unified in Paul right like what's significant about the Christian faith as a tool through which we can articulate our, our a desire for change in the world as an annoying way of saying how can I make change with what I've known in my life. Um, and the testimony, something that's practiced that we've talked about today already, and something that's practiced widely across Christianity, is something that I think is really remarkable, and that you can find in the work of Paul, and that tells us that it's not like these things that are just about me feel, or that I'm told are just about me. It's a personal faith, a personal relationship, or whatever is actually kind of kind of nonsense. Paul's testimony, the change in Paul's life, Paul received a new name. He received an entire new lease on life, and he started preaching to people this idea that you can achieve a new body, um, that that un, like it, it through the through things like resurrection, uh, bodily resurrection, as well as a rising up of the spirit. There's there's a, our will to and desire to make change in the world can actually be an affirmation of something so big. And it can actually create promises for the future um, that open up our ability to try and think through why something so impactful for me is actually important for other people. Um, Paul had some the most intense sort of like the narrative around Paul and his intense life-changing experiences and encountering Jesus and losing sight and regaining it and gaining a new name is all related to the idea that like it your. The radical experiences that you have in faith are not just your own. They're not personal, but they're profoundly social. They exist in a world. You articulate them amongst the people that you love and you have a desire, I'm sure, to help other people receive those same intense sort of very spiritual experiences. I've received those spiritual experiences more places outside of church by and far now than I have inside of it. The way the way that I articulate my story and my testimony all comes from standing in pickets and going out on strike and standing up against uh really bad bosses and standing up against politicians and running candidates against them and then using everything that I learned in church to do all of that that if we do this thing right it actually becomes about how do I build up people and help them become more powerful like I feel like I have how do, how do they how do we help them build leaders in their community to share ideas, skills, and desires with one another as a way for making new change. It's so much, it's so personal because it's all about sort of my personal experiences at work and organizing and that sort of a thing. But it also has never once actually just been about me and has always been about other people. And it's taught me everything that I need to know about how to engage in my workplace, how to stand up for people, um, you know, how to articulate that politically how to talk about it with others, because other people have the same experience, too. We just, you know, it tells us a lot about each other, I think.
2: Yeah, and I wanted to say, in, in the book, I also mentioned Kyle a little bit and his story. And in order to say that people who grew up like Kyle and people who grew up like us, from the perspective of the God that a lot of us grew up with, it's a tragic story of like, they started very good on this good path with these fellow Christians. And then they started being uh, manipulated by these strange philosophies and were led out. And now they couldn't be further from God as uh, leftist labor organizers. But from the perspective of the God of the Exodus, who frees the slaves or the perspective of the God of Jesus, who talks about liberating the oppressed from the perspective of that God, People like us have been on one long, consistent journey, further uh, following the calling of this much more liberative God that we actually experience, and of course, that goes outside of our churches.
3: Yeah, and and I think you know the that's getting close to a pretty good place to end it on, but I did want to make sure that we addressed uh, a, we that we addressed the title of the book the god who who riots is a very is a very provocative title and it came you announced it in a very provocative time uh you know we were not too long after the uh after the george floyd protests i believe when you announced that this book was going to be coming out uh and so obviously the the mainstream of the you know of certainly the evangelical churches the only thing that they were concerned with as far as socially if they were concerned about the George Floyd protest was condemning the riots that was the universal kind of uh, uh um thrust of the evangelical church politically at that time and here you are with a book. That is saying God riots. That's you know, that's 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 some pretty out there stuff, Damon. Well, how do you how do you justify that?
2: Hmm. Yeah, and the subtitle is uh, "Taking Back the Radical Jesus," and and yeah, the, the title references Jesus in in the last week of his life, going into the temple, and this classic story. Many people know flipping tables and pouring out coins, and that when a growing up that story was taught is like this spontaneous temper tantrum like Jesus just couldn't handle what he was saying so he started flipping stuff but what we see he's more likely doing is a planned temple demonstration especially after this demonstration on uh past Passover uh, Sunday when he goes through on a donkey while people wave leaves probably just we know this from the historian Jophesus, probably at the same time that Pontius Pilate was coming from the entrance on the other side of the city on a war horse with his armies. And it's, so it's like a deliberate lampoon of that. And so in this temple with, uh, in, in the demonstration in the temple, he's flipping specifically the things within the outer court that were being used to buy and sell. And he does this to put a temporary hold on their activities to for everyone to hear him and he says you've turned this place into a den of robbers and something I found really fascinating is that a den of robbers isn't where people are robbed like we may assume a den of robbers is where robbers go and hide thinking they're mm-hmm. safe and he's also directly quoting Jeremiah who also had a very similar temple demonstration and he like more clearly lays out that way of looking at a den of robbers saying you're, you're doing all of this injustice and then you're coming in the temple saying we're safe it's all good it's like it's uh and then they try to kill jeremiah too but he just got away at that time and jesus is essentially accusing the religious leaders of his day of using their religion to hide and avoid the injustices going on everywhere and this demonstration includes property destruction with the flipping of the tables, looting with the pouring out of coins and freeing the animals that are being bought and sold. Because looting doesn't have to be stealing something for yourself, but rather taking it out of this uh, cycle of consumption for free for people to take. There's a spirit of sharing sometimes and looting. And so having that knowledge and then seeing the George Floyd protests happen and remember the third night in Minneapolis uh, the third precinct police station was on fire and I was watching a live stream of it and seeing protesters dancing and celebrating in front of that fire and at the time COVID had also just started so on the front a question on the front of a lot of people's minds was where is God where's God in all of this suffering we're experiencing and when I saw that live stream dancing in front of that Burning Precinct. I said, "That's exactly where God is." I get, I very much felt it. Have already having this um, understanding of God. It's like, of course, that's where God is to be found, among those who are exploited and fighting to build a new world. And so that's what the the title references. And then just throughout the book. I talk, I'm talking about a lot of stuff to basically just convey this theme that we see again and again, God is on the side of the oppressed, as we build a new world, which will be met with conflict, but uh, through solidarity and action is how we get there. And that's what Jesus was all about. And so yeah, that's basically the whole book.
3: Damon Garcia, the book is The God Who Riots, Taking Back the Radical Jesus. Kyle Kearns, proprietor of the Labor Kyle YouTube channel, participated in the conversation. We appreciate both of you. Damon, where can people find your work other than anywhere they find books?
2: Yeah, I got DamonGarcia.com. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at WhoIsDamon. You'd send me a DM and say, hey, I heard you on the Valley Labor Report. That'll make me happy. This is a great time. I love being on here.
3: And Kyle, what about you? Did I get all your plugs or were there some that I missed? (laughs) Labor Kyle on stuff and Twitter
2: and whatever.
0: Follow me. I got some stuff up at uh, the Zero Books YouTube channel as well. Uh, If you'd like to go watch, uh, that'd be fine.
3: Yeah, and you told me that you're you're coming out with a book. I won't I won't talk about what you said it was about cuz I don't know how much of it is public yet, but we're very much interested in in bringing you on to talk about it. Can't wait. All right.
2: Yes. Thanks, y'all. A lot of new and exciting books. Yes. <laughs> <That's so awesome. laughs>
3: All right, Damon Kyle, I appreciate your time. Thanks for coming on. Thanks Thank you guys. That's going to be it for us today on the Valley Labor Report folks. We appreciate your time. Um Just a reminder, the UMWA Strike Pantry always could use donations. You can uh, send donations to paypal.me slash UMWA Strike Pantry. The Alabama Troublemaker School is on Saturday, October 15th, two weeks from today. Register now at labornotes.org. Your Vote Matters Educational Forum happened—oh, this is a past event. You can leave us a voicemail uh, at— at eight four four eight nine nine TVLR, you can buy a hat or give us money on our website TVLR.fm/store and TVLR.fm/donate. See you next week. Oh wait, wait! Don't don't shut the stream off yet. Uh, I didn't. You oh, caught it just hey, in time. Hey, I caught it just in time. <laughs> hey, I forgot to mention this. I forgot to mention this. I'm gonna be going live here tomorrow at nine a.m. with Ben Burgess for double overtime to talk about my uh, recent appearance on a local conservative uh, radio program. On a local conservative radio program yesterday, I was on the Dale Jackson show, and uh, for uh, for about a year in in uh, uh, the first year when I was doing the show, I did uh, some regular appearances on the Dale Jackson show, and we just never started it back up after I got back from uh, supporting Hurricane Ida recovery in New Orleans, um, and so I went back on on Friday. I went back on on the Dale Jackson show on Friday, and I want to, um, I want to seriously evaluate whether or not it's like worth my time or that it's having a positive impact. So, so I think we may be doing some occasional um, double overtimes on Sunday morning. Maybe bringing in uh, debate bros to assess my performance and see if it's see if see if it's worth uh see if it's worth continuing to do that because I don't want to do it uh, just to do it. I only want to do it. If it is, if it's worth it, and if it's valuable. So, so we're going to be going live tomorrow at 9 a.m. with Ben Burgess, and we're going to be reacting to my recent appearance on the Dale Jackson Show, where I talked about Steve Marshall uh, refusing to do anything about child labor in the state of Alabama. So, just wanted to make sure that that uh, said that that pluck. Uh, so, see you tomorrow, actually, and then again next week. <laughs>